358, Chapter 39. Book Talk begins at 2318. Welcome to Craftlit, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 358, After. This episode brought to you by Survival Organs. Handmade organs to throw, love, or cuddle. And Knit Circus, the e-newsletter bringing you three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at knitcircus.com. And March Hair Yarns, hand-dyed yarns just for you. You can visit the March Hair at Etsy. And Pennywise Consulting, technology solutions for your small business. Links to all of our sponsors can be found in the show notes at craftlit.com. Remember, their support for the show is what keeps it free for you. So go have a look. Well, hello. Welcome. I hope you had a marvelous week. I did. And I realized that I cut something from last week that I thought you might be interested in about Robin Williams. You know the llama that shows up in Aladdin where the genie says something about the llama and says, watch out, they spit. Okay, that was an ad lib. That and the I'm mythology, the I'm history. No, I'm mythology. The I'm mythology he came up with, but the llama thing, I actually remember everyone cracking up. Because talk about random facts that Robin Williams knew. (laughs) Llamas were not that common back in 1991, 92, 91. At least, not in the United States. So, that was fun. Well, I have book review and lots of listener feedback and commentary today, so I am going to hop to it. Vanessa writes, and this is a different Vanessa. This is not Vanessa who is scribe at craftlit.com. Listener Vanessa writes, Hi there, Heather. I've just been listening to Dixie's description of machinery in the good old days and was reminded I've been meaning to recommend a book to you. Midnight is a Place, and it's by Joan Aiken. It's a wonderful adversity-slash-adventure tale for children set in midnight northern England and around the Murgatroyd's carpet manufactory. I think. It's been a couple of years since I read it. Child deaths, kids' jobs in the factories, union involvement, it's all there. If I can get you interested in that book, Joan Aiken, who along with Alan Garner, Susan Cooper, and Lloyd Alexander has to be one of my all-time favorite authors for that pre-teen age group, has a whole series based around two or three child protagonists and set in the reign of King James III, who is the father of our Bonnie Prince Charlie. That is to say, it's alternate history, very colorful, very dramatic, and adventures with many wolves, pirates, dastardly Hanoverian plotters, a length of tapestry that saves a duchess's life at least four times, and a pink whale. I highly recommend. Sadly, Midnight is a Place seems to be a standalone book. I hope you can dig this book and series up. Love the podcast. 
I rarely listen in real time because I hate having to wait. I suspect I haven't listened to the end of the last book for that reason. Take care, Vanessa. I totally understand not wanting to wait. I really do. And in that hating to wait vein, next week is the last episode of Bleak House, which means that the final version of bundle number five will go up into the shop the next day. Bleak House will be complete and full and in the shop. And we have it set up so that you can buy it in bundles, chunks of lots of hours of audio, or you can buy it as a complete zipped file. We did it that way in case it's a lot of audio. If you wanted to buy a smaller chunk to test it out, you can do it that way. So that's how that's all set up for you. On top of the Midnight is a Place book by Joan Aiken, we also got a couple of other books sent in to share with you. One is a Sense and Sensibility board book, but it's an opposites book. I don't know if you remember, I think it was like, it was a year ago. I think it was during Jane Eyre, where someone sent in the Jane Austen Pride and Prejudice kids board books, and it was the the story of Pride and Prejudice. This is different. This is an opposites book. So it teaches kids opposites, but it's through using imagery and character names from Sense and Sensibility, which is genius because that way it gets the kids used to the names of the characters and the places in the book. And then when they're older and they read Sense and Sensibility, it'll all be familiar to them. And that, I mean, that kind of moment, have you had that happen to you before? Where something, something that you saw on a Warner Brothers cartoon with Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd or something like that, you, you see it as a kid, you laugh at it. Even, even like the What's Opera doc, where they do, you know, kill the wabbit, that one. And then later, when you're a grown-up, if you wind up going and watching opera, all of a sudden you go, oh, oh, well, goodness. <laughs> look, look what there was on kids' entertainment back then. Golly Moses, that's, <laughs> that's, that's not what's on TV now. Although Phineas and Ferb... I have to say I have a I have a soft spot in my heart for triangle-headed children right now and and platypi. If you don't have children and you haven't watched Phineas and Ferb, really you must. You must. Oh, and last week during all the hoo-ha about Robin Williams passing away, Lauren Bacall died too, which is very sad. I she was just one of those classy broads is what she was. She was pretty spectacular. If you haven't ever seen Lauren Bacall in anything, go back and take a look at To Have and Have Not. That was the first movie she did. She was 19 years old. And and that was the movie where she met Humphrey Bogart, who she married. They had one of those (laughs) rare Hollywood loves that just lasted, well, lasted until, until he died. But she was, she was something else. Back then, back then in all her life, she was, she was classy. So that was, that was very sad. And you know, that's, boy, Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler. Boy, if they were public domain, we would have so much fun. I love, I love Raymond Chandler. He's such a marvelous writer. And now, a voicemail from one of our listeners. 
Hi, I am a new subscriber, um, and I can't tell you how thrilled I am with your program. As a child, uh, my mother used to read to us aloud every evening, and I heard lots of classics that way. And now it's back to being able to listen and knit again. Thank you so very much. You can call one 206 or use the Leave Feedback link at the show notes at craftlit.com. And this being the week of contact... I have an email from Phyllis. She writes, The Museum of Science and Industry in Manchester has a Manchester Mills demonstration. Twice daily, a tour guide fires up the machines and explains how they work. And there's a link in the show notes so that you can go to that site. But that makes me, that makes me very happy to know that there's still working machinery there. And a few people have written in and said that they've been on demonstrations like that, and we all have noted just how bloody loud these things were. Phyllis goes on to say, also Elizabeth Gaskell's house in Manchester is being renovated and will be open again in October 2014 for tours. And there is a link to the Elizabeth Gaskell house as well. So a big thank you to Phyllis for sending that information in. And then Kathleen, who is Kay Connors, C-O-N-N-O-R-S on Ravelry. She wrote, I accidentally learned a new word today, tricoteuse, that referenced Madame Defarge. And then we have a link to the Wikipedia page on tricoteuses. She said, this may be old news to you, but I thought it was cool. If you remember way back in 2007, when we did Tale of Two Cities, we did find out about these tricoteuses. And before I go on and read the rest of her email just in case you weren't listening back then or haven't listened to Tale of Two Cities. The Tricotuses were a group of women who were integral to part of the French Revolution. These were real women who Dickens based Madame Defarge on loosely, who sat in the front row at the guillotine and knit while they watched the heads roll into the baskets. It was so important for them to be there eventually, that they would, you know, this could be urban legend. I don't know. I wasn't there. But the stories that I've read include the fact that they would hold the executions until the women showed up with their knitting. It was kind of like they were speakers for the dead, except they weren't speakers. They were like Dickens did in in Tale of Two Cities with the vengeance, the allegorical, not so allegorical character, that they were important and they were known, and they were talked about. Kathleen goes on to say, By the way, I looked up the word while reading an article called The First World War and Knitting by K.L. Bevan, B-E-V-A-N, in the August 2014 Rowan Digital Magazine. I did not know there was a Rowan Digital Magazine. I will find it and put a link to it in the show notes for you. So she, she was reading it in the Rowan Digital Magazine where she says the reference to it seemed rather odd to me. A German reporter was quoted as saying that during the war, knitting has now become so prevalent, and remember this is the First World War, knitting has now become so prevalent that it is something of a disgrace for a woman to sit idle in a tramway car or a train when, with her knitting needle, she might be helping the heroes of the fatherland. In Berlin, you will see these tricotuses, modern style, on every hand. And I I agree, that is a little... It is a little discomforting, no? I don't think that the German reporter perhaps knew the history 
of the term trichotuses, which is you know, unfortunate because really all it is is French for knitters, or I guess it's gendered, so it would be knitting women. And it, it's unfortunate that it now carries this baggage with it, but but it does kind of feel icky using it when you're talking about World War One. Interesting though. Kathleen and I will I will find that Rowan magazine and I will link to that from the show notes. We have a literarily inspired voicemail from Jana Lee and I've I've a link to the article in the show notes for you the one that she she references as well. Hi Heather this is Jana Lee um my Ravelry name is Knits and Heights and I've been listening to your podcast for a while and my daughter and I actually both really have enjoyed both the book talk and the um, the free audiobooks that you offer. Um, we really appreciate everything that we've learned and we enjoy hearing your perspective on, on the things that are written. Um, I ran across a, it's a paper called The Perception of Rhythm in Spoken and Written Language by Ann Cutler. And it talks about um, segmentation and language specificity of rhythmic structure. And the reason that it reminded, well, I thought about you when I was reading it because of the the recent poetic interlude episode that you did. And I just want to read you part of this. I think you'll enjoy it. Um, it goes. Um, so they're talking about the perception of rhythm in spoken and written language. And she says, an important source of evidence, and few would dare impugn it, can be found in versed poetry, the metrical domain. So compare the English limerick, a form which thousands take up, with the haiku, a poetic form of note in Japanese. There are five lines in a limerick, and stress defines their makeup. The third and fourth are two stress lines, the others all are threes. And analogously, haiku have their composition reckoned by the Mora computation in a manner iron cast. While the longest line in Moray, having seven, is the second, there are five, and only five in both the first line and the last. Now, the entire document is not rhythm, or is not written in a rhythmic um, poetry like this, but quite a bit of it is, and it just, it really tickled me, and I thought you might like to look at it, and maybe some of your other listeners would be interested in it as well. So again, that is... Um, called The Perception of Rhythm in Spoken and Written Language, and it's written by Ann Cutler. Um, and I probably will just copy and paste the um, website to your Craftlit Ravelry uh, group, if that's okay. Anyway, keep up the good work. Um, I always enjoy hearing what you think about literature and about um, both in general and specific to the books that we're discussing. And I really, really appreciate the time that you put into that. It's, it's so, it makes me so happy to listen. So thank you and uh, goodbye. We have another voicemail from Tara Worster, who is worster weight on Ravelry. Hey, Heather, it's Tara. Again, we're still waiting on Ravelry. Your listeners are going to think I'm some crazy stalker who now has your phone number. I was calling to give you a little bit of input on your opening and ending music. One, I have fallen in love with the ending music. It reminds me of my English for professor. And also, it reminds me of weekends I used to spend down in Florida 
when I lived there, I would go to this open air mall and on Friday nights and Saturday nights, they have these amazing acoustic bands that would play anything. And I listen to the ending music and I, I smile every time because it sounds amazing. And something else you should think about when regarding your music, it's kind of your signature. Yes, most podcasts have a short one or none at all, but yours is a longer one, and it's also a longer podcast. We've kind of grown used to hearing the Welcome to Craftlet that comes from you and your podcast, so that, yes, when we just blindly hit play on our audio device of choice, mine happens to be my cell phone, that, you know, we know as soon as that music starts up, oh, I'm listening to Craftlet. What episode is this? You'll tell us. What book are we on again? Oh, we're on this book and it's these chapters. Amazing. What have you been doing, Heather? Oh, that's what you've been doing. Fabulous. I think you should keep it. It's your signature and it differentiates your podcast from Joe Schmo down the road, often who knows where. You should keep it. Vote one for keep. Bye, Heather. Have a great day. <laughs> She's She's a little concerned that you'll think she's a stalker, but I loved what she had to say about the opening and closing. And thank you all who took that poll to let me know what you thought of the opening and the ending. For those of you who listen to Jane Eyre and are not subscribed to comments in the show notes at craftlit.com, Sarah posted a link on the very last episode of Jane Eyre saying, since this is the end of the book, I shall put this hilarity here. It is, it is somebody's post of texts from Jane Eyre. So it's texts between Jane and Rochester and St. John, and they are spectacularly funny. They do not follow the book at all. It's not like one of those modern, modern versions of the story. It's, it's the texts you would imagine would go back and forth between these characters. Were they living now? So I have put a link to that in the show notes as well. It is a lot of fun. And next week, I will announce what the next premium audio will be. Because Bleak House is such a bloody long book, it will be up and available to subscribers for a significant period of time. We will start retiring the audio in chunks that match the bundles on the shop. But we'll, we will announce that retirement schedule at some point. And people who are new subscribers after bundles have been retired will get a discount code, which we think we've fixed in the shop. I received an email from a listener over the last week, I think, who sent in a book. I cannot find this email again. I think I, think I tried to print it when, when the computer was out of ink and I didn't realize it and deleted the memory. So someone needs to claim genius on this one. But we were having a conversation and they sent, I wish I could remember who I was writing back and forth with, but she sent in a book, which I found on Amazon called You Wouldn't Want to Be a Victorian Mill Worker. And it turns out that this is a series of, of You Wouldn't Want to Be a Cathedral Builder. And, you know, it's, it's all of these things. They're children's books. I am so ordering this one. It's fascinating to take a look at what this book is about. But I've, I've put a link to it in the show notes. And if you are a new listener, one of the things you may not know is that when I put links to Amazon books in the show notes, 
those are affiliate links. And that means that if you follow that link and purchase that item, Craftlit gets a little bit of money on the back end. It doesn't cost any more for you. It benefits the show quite a bit. And if you continue shopping from that point on, anything that you purchase from the, the moment that you leave the Craftlit site through the end of your Amazon purchase process, all of that gets tallied up and credited to Craftlit. So if you want to help the show in a painless way, please start shopping with an Amazon link at the Craftlit site. In crafty news, last week I promised you a book review of Tammy Hildebrand's new book that's just come out, which is Crochet for Baby All Year, easy to make outfits for every month. And this is the August raffle book. So if you are a crocheter, please follow the links in the show notes to the raffle page so that you can enter to win. Winners will be chosen randomly from all of the entries and I will then email them and get an address and then I will ship the book out to you and it will be all yours. Tammy Hildebrand, if you recall, we reviewed a book of hers, another book of hers because she doesn't sleep earlier in North and South. But as a reminder, Tammy Hildebrand is the author of Crochet Wraps Every Which Way, that's the other book that we looked at, and the vice president of the Crochet Guild of America. Her designs have appeared in many publications, including Interweave Crochet, Crochet! Exclamation point, crochet World, Crochet 123, and the book Unexpected Afghans, as well as in the collections of major yarn manufacturers and distributors. She blogs at Hot Lava Crochet dot blogspot.com hot lava crochet is all one word and she lives in kennersville north carolina so one of the things that i i love about this book is the september pattern set because it's a set there's a boy and a girl for each thing she does it month by month and the september one is back to school and it includes what looks like a letterman sweater for the boys and a cheerleaders like a gourd skirt for the girls this is all crochet. And if that weren't adorable enough, she also has little football booties that I swear look like little footballs and a football hat that has the stitches up the top of the hat. They are so cute. I wrote a, a more formal review of the book over at the mamaonits.com website, and you'll see a picture of these two patterns over there. They just, they just cracked me up. And the girls' dresses really impressive looking. She has actually quite a few dresses for little girls and a couple of rompers and lots of little hats. And then she has she has a beach section for the summer months and she crocheted little flip-flops for the kids. <laughs> They're so adorable. And the pet the pattern is in the book. So, take a look if you are a crocheter, go look at the link to the mamaownits.com website where you will find a review and some pictures of the patterns in this book. And then don't forget to enter the raffle, which you can get to at the show notes for episode 358 at craftlit.com. Ooh, I almost forgot to tell you, we had a really cool thing happen last week. For reasons that I can no longer remember, <laughs> I had to go to the iTunes store. And I thought while I was there, ooh, I wonder, I wonder how Craftlit is doing. And so I looked at literature podcasts, which is how we are organized. And there are two specialized categories on the iTunes store. The first one is new and notable, and those are handpicked by Apple people. But then below that, there's what's hot, 
which is based purely on download numbers from my understanding. And Craftlet was there in the What's Hot lineup. I took a screenshot of it. I was so excited. I posted it on Facebook because that hadn't happened to me before. I hadn't seen it listed there. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. You made my day. And thank you for the kind emails. I've gotten such lovely emails over the last couple of weeks. Thank you so much. North and South. Well, for North and South today, we got a marvelous voicemail from Eileen. She found another set of contrasts, aside from the more obvious ones, and did a lovely job of pulling us through them. So here, let's listen to what Eileen has to say. Hi, Heather. My name is Eileen, and I've been listening to the podcast for some time. And I just wanted to call in about something about the current book, North and South, that has been rattling around in my brain. You know, you talked a lot about how it's contrasts between the North and the South, and between the different attitudes and the people. One that I don't think has been talked about a lot is the contrast between Margaret's father, Mr. Hale, and Bessie's father, Mr. Higgins. This first really struck me in the chapter called Frederick, chapter 25, where first you have Bessie telling us about what her father has said regarding Bowsher, that I never thought of telling the police on him, though by God he deserves it, and I should not have minded if someone else had done the dirty work and got him clapped up. A little bit later, Mr. Hale says to Margaret about the letter she sent to Frederick, I'm glad it is done, though I durst not have done it myself. So there you have the two of them One saying, I would never have done it, it wouldn't have been right, and the other saying, I wouldn't dare to have done it, on something sort of similar. The one is up on criminal, they're both up on criminal charges or out for arrest, and they both feel paternal. You know, in one case, he is actually the father of Frederick, and in the other, he has these paternal feelings, as we are now seeing, with the way that he's choosing to care for the widow and the children. They also each have an ailing relative who is dependent on them, and they both approach that in a very different way. You have Mr. Hale with his wife denying that she's really sick, you know, trying to look on the bright side, hoping she's going to be better tomorrow. You have Mr. Higgins, who is resigned to the fact that Bessie is going to die and willing to make her comfortable, but not willing to sort of coddle her or, you know, try to... uh, play to all her whims. If she wants to go on and on about religion, he's going to tell her to stop. And then finally, we have Mr. Hale, who has given up his, his, his position in the church because of his conscience and the fact that he does not um, feel he can continue, um, and thereby losing the means by which he is supporting his wife and daughter. And in contrast, we have Higgins, who, despite the pangs of his contrast, is going to go out and find work in order to support someone else's widow and children. Yeah, I just have been very struck by the, the, the two approaches to fatherhood and to manhood that we see in those two characters. You know, thinking about the part with the, in the chapter of Frederick also had me thinking about the differences between Boucher, who was a part of the riot but not actually one of the the leaders, he was not the one who threw, threw the stone in spite of being accused of that. And Frederick, who is one of the leaders of a mutiny, and um, 
you know, how justified either of them is in taking the course of action that they have done. And, you know, one of them we want to forgive because he's Frederick's brother, and the other one we want to have some sort of repercussion, perhaps not the one that has happened, but, you know, he, he is supposed to have something happen because he has harmed not only himself, but all of the other strikers by participating in this riot. Anyway, Heather, I really love the podcast. I really love that you have this line because it seems actually easier to call you and say it than it does to email it or put it in a comment. I look forward to listening to the next installment of North and South. All right. Thank you so much for doing your podcast, and I hope you are well. Bye. Wasn't that awesome? And I I agree with you, Eileen. I think the phone number has made a huge difference. It is so much easier for people to either tap on the number or go to the show notes and find the number and call in. That's pretty awesome because you can call it in the middle of the night and it won't wake me up. I love that. one 1642 or the leave feedback link at But wasn't that spectacular? So yes. Okay. The other thing that I am realizing and the dichotomy between Hale and Higgins is I would much rather hang out with Higgins than with Hale. I don't know if that's how we were meant to feel, (laughs) but it's certainly how I do feel. I've been wondering if part of the reason Gaskell did that was to fight generalized prejudices. Her, Her readership was at least in part from people higher up the economic scale and, uh, and they may have had prejudices against people of, of Higgins' working class. And by showing him to be, in many ways, a, a better father and a better man, perhaps that was an attempt to uh, give one to the, the home team in Manchester. I don't know. The Frederick Bauscher dichotomy had not occurred to me, but you're absolutely right. And I think the, the parallels between them are so interesting because the, what Bauscher does really drives me crazy. It's when it when people have the reasons for something explained to them. Just like with Martin Luther King. Dr. King made it very clear, Gandhi made it very clear why violence was not going to be employed, what it would do to the cause if that was the direction that was taken. Everybody who was participating knew the cost of reacting in violence. Dr. King and and the rest of the leadership that he was working with managed to do an extraordinary job. When you go back and you watch the film footage of what was happening during that extremely turbulent time, it is shocking to me the amount of patience and forbearance that was shown by by those people who were just fighting for simple, simple civil rights that should never have been denied in the first place. Ridiculous. With Boucher, in their minds, they are fighting for very similar things, the right to sustain a family and get get paid a living wage and get paid a portion of the profits from their labor. But Boucher, Boucher knows the cost of violence. It has been explained, but he participates in it anyway. Frederick is interesting because Frederick knows the cost of mutiny as well. I mean, everybody on that ship knows. 
but there seems to be a lot more deliberation and forethought involved in Frederick's mutiny as opposed to what feels like a, a more visceral and, and kind of responsive reaction, you know, where they're responding uh, kind of in haste to being frustrated. I think knowing that the, the captain on the ship was, was running the risk of killing some of the, the younger boys on the ship, that, that that probably had more to do with firing Frederick into action. Although Frederick certainly had his callous moments too when he was with Margaret. So, I don't know. But Eileen, thank you so much for sending that in. That was a really, really awesome voicemail. So, listener Maya writes in, and I think I pronounced that right, because her Ravelry ID is M-A-I-D-A-Y on Ravelry, and her name is spelled M-A-I-A, so I hope it's Maya instead of Maya. I'm not sure. Hello, I am new to Craftlet, having been told about it by a friend last Saturday. Since then, I have binge-listened to all the North and South episodes to date. <laughs> oh, I'm glad to know that you're still vertical and capable of writing. I've loved audiobooks for a long time, but I find the added information really makes this a much fuller experience. I studied literature at school, but listening to this sort of analysis as an adult really makes a lot more sense than a lot of it did back then. Oh, I know exactly how you feel. I live in the north of England, in an area which has a very similar industrial heritage to Manchester, though being in Yorkshire rather than in Lancashire. We had woolen mills rather than cotton. The climate in Lancashire, being west of the Pennines and therefore damper, was better for cotton. And we have lots of sheep. Yay, I know, I've been there, you lucky thing. I am very lucky to be able to go to the Knit and Natter group at Armley Mills Museum every week. Okay, everyone, all at once. Hi, Maya, we're jealous. And she says that the museum is just a mile away from her house. She goes on to say, it was at one point the largest woolen mill in the world, and they still have working spinning machinery, which they run from time to time. She gave me a link, so I will put this in the show notes as well, from the uh, leads.gov.uk museums and galleries page. So that's very cool. And she is Mayday on Ravelry, spelled M-A-I-D-A-Y. Fabulous information, no? I love that. Next listener letter. We got an email from Trisha. She writes in, I listened to several chapters in a row today, so this comment may be on the wrong show. But in the chapter where Margaret is beating herself up for not having enough faith, it reminded me a lot of Jane Eyre, The Scarlet Letter, and even Little Women. In all of those books, there is a sense that God's approval relies on meeting inhuman standards of perfection. Each time I encounter that attitude in literature, it frustrates and saddens me. And I know exactly what you mean, Tricia. It's definitely one of those Victorian things, isn't it? I mean, it really does pop up all through this, this entire era, something that we did not see in, say, Pride and Prejudice. And that probably has something to do with the difference between Jane Austen and Elizabeth Gaskell, and certainly Charlotte Bronte. But it also must have something to do with the time and the morals of the time and all of the things that people think of when they think of the Victorian era. 
there must have also been so many odd pressures going on at the time because you had the Industrial Revolution pushing the direction of the culture in in one way, where women were going into factories and working, which was new. And as we've seen over and over again throughout history, anytime women enter the workplace, there's always, uh, and by, by workplace, I mean the formal workplace, we, we always work. Any Anytime women have entered the outside-of-home workforce, it's created some some sort of trouble in, uh, in the culture. It sent ripples through it. And I think one of the things that happens is women start to get judged more differently, oddly, certainly differently from men. And a lot of that, of course, is self-imposed because nobody messes women up more than women. But this was also... And we haven't talked about it as much in this book as we did in Jane Eyre. But this was also a time of great, I started to say rebellion, but it wasn't rebellion. It was the rise of the dissenters. It was people, people questioning and discussing and taking the issue of religion very seriously. And it's not that I don't think we take religion seriously now or that they didn't take religion seriously during Jane Austen's time. But I think when when things are in turmoil and when women's purview is the home, then you wind up with women feeling that they're supposed to be managing, I put that in quotation marks, everything a lot. I think it's easy for women to own that sense of unease and not discomfort, but you know, that topsy-turvy feeling where everything's not settled, it's unsettled and uncomfortable. And I think I think women tend to own that discomfort, women tend to own that, that, uh, that difficulty, those difficulties, and they, they tend to get blamed, and then they blame themselves, too. So I, I think it's absolutely there. Today's chapter is a wee chapter. It is a little chapter, but it is a good one. We've been waiting for some Thornton Margaret action, but there's a lot that has to be dealt with before we can really watch them together and see sparks fly good ones or bad ones. Today's chapter does include some more self-flagellation, as Tricia was talking about, from Margaret. But today's self-flagellation has less to do with being faithless than to do with being in a real pickle, because she can't explain Frederick, you know, to anyone. And that's, that's difficult. I know I've mentioned it before that one of the things I find so interesting about books from this time is how frequently we come across somebody saying, it's not my secret to tell. And Margaret is not only stuck in that sense, but she's also stuck in the, oh, oh yeah, and her brother could get killed if the wrong person finds out or whatever. It's not a good thing. And I don't mean get killed. I mean be executed for mutiny. So she she really is in a bit of a pickle. And while I don't think she thinks that Mr. Thornton isn't trustworthy, I think the larger implications and the ramifications of her talking to someone would be quite quite serious. So we do start with a little bit more self-flagellation, but we quickly get on to a couple of really interesting scenes. There really isn't any language in in the chapter today that I think will be tricky or tie you up, but but I think you will enjoy both being frustrated by part of the chapter and feeling very gratified about part of the chapter. And I did get called to task on a comment that I made last week about Thornton. And I, I want to read the comment because I think it is important. 
Gretchen wrote in and said, I must disagree with your assessment of Mr. Thornton. As a master, when he heard that the man waiting to speak to him was Higgins, the leader of the strike, I think most powerful men of the time would have had him thrown into the street. Mr. Thornton invited him in and listened to him. He may not have given him a job, but he gave him a hearing and also explained why he wouldn't hire him. I suspect that would have been very unusual and therefore sets Mr. Thornton apart. And I think Gretchen is is probably right. I mean, Thornton didn't invite Higgins into his home. It was his office where he was used to having workers in. But I I imagine that that this is very true, that he, he was certainly more civil than Hamper was. And that has set him apart all the way through the book, that he is he is not Hamper. And with that reminder of Thornton's good character, let's go have a look at chapter 39, volume 2, chapter 14, Making Friends. Chapter 39 Making Friends Nay, I have done. You get no more of me, and I am glad, yea, glad with all my heart, that thus, so clearly, I myself am free. Drayton Margaret shut herself up in her own room after she had quitted Mrs. Thornton. She began to walk backwards and forwards in her old habitual way of showing agitation, but then, remembering that in that slightly built house every step was heard from one room to another, she sat down until she heard Mrs. Thornton go safely out of the house. She forced herself to recollect all the conversation that had passed between them. Speech by speech, she compelled her memory to go through with it. At the end, she rose up and said to herself in a melancholy tone, at any rate, her words do not touch me. They fall off from me, for I am innocent of all the motives she attributes to me. But still, it is hard to think that any one, any woman, can believe all this of another so easily. It is hard and sad. Where I have done wrong, she does not accuse me. She does not know. He never told her. I might have known he would not. She lifted up her head as if she took pride in any delicacy of feeling which Mr. Thornton had shown. Then, as a new thought came across her, she pressed her hands tightly together. He too must take poor Frederick for some lover. She blushed as the word passed through her mind. I see it now. It is not merely that he knows of my falsehood, but... He believes that someone else cares for me and that I... Oh, dear! Oh, dear! What shall I do? What do I mean? Why do I care what he thinks beyond the mere loss of his good opinion as regards my telling the truth or not? I cannot tell. But I am very miserable. Oh, how unhappy this last year has been! I have passed out of childhood into old age. I have had no youth, no womanhood. The hopes of womanhood have closed for me, for I shall never marry, and I anticipate 
cares and sorrows just as if I were an old woman and with the same fearful spirit. I am weary of this continual call upon me for strength. I could bear up for papa because that is a natural pious duty, and I think I could bear up against, at any rate, I could have the energy to resent Mrs. Thornton's unjust, impertinent suspicions. But it is hard to feel how completely he must misunderstand me. What has happened to make me so morbid today? I do not know. I only know I cannot help it. I must give way sometimes. No, I will not, though, said she, springing to her feet. I will not, I will not think of myself in my own position. I won't examine into my own feelings. It would be of no use now. Sometime, if I live to be an old woman, I may sit over the fire and, looking into the embers, see the life that might have been. All this time she was hastily putting on her things to go out, only stopping from time to time to wipe her eyes with an impatience of gesture at the tears that would come, in spite of all her bravery. I dare say there's many a woman makes as sad a mistake as I've done and only finds it out too late. And how proudly and impertinently I spoke to him that day. But I did not know then. It has come upon me little by little, and I don't know where it began. Now, I won't give way. I shall find it difficult to behave in the same way to him with this miserable consciousness upon me, but I will be very calm and very quiet and say very little. But, to be sure, I may not see him. He keeps out of our way, evidently. That would be worse than all. And yet, no wonder that he avoids me, believing what he must about me. She went out, going rapidly towards the country and trying to drown reflection by swiftness of motion. As she stood on the doorstep at her return, her father came up. Good girl, said he. You've been to Mrs. Boucher's. I was just meaning to go there, if I had time, before dinner. No, Papa, I have not, said Margaret, reddening. I never thought about her, but I will go directly after dinner. I will go while you are taking your nap. Accordingly, Margaret went. Mrs. Boucher was very ill, really ill, not merely ailing. The kind and sensible neighbor who had come in the other day seemed to have taken charge of everything. Some of the children were gone to the neighbors. Mary Higgins had come for the three youngest at dinner time, and since then Nicholas had gone for the doctor. He had not come as yet. Mrs. Boucher was dying, and there was nothing to do but to wait. Margaret thought that she should like to know his opinion and that she could not do better than go and see the Higginses in the meantime. She might then possibly hear whether Nicholas had been able to make his application to Mr. Thornton. She found Nicholas busily engaged in making a penny spin on the dresser for the amusement of the three little children who were clinging to him in a fearless manner. He, as well as they, was smiling at a good long spin 
and Margaret thought that the happy look of interest in his occupation was a good sign. When the penny stopped spinning, little Johnny began to cry. Come to me, said Margaret, taking him off the dresser and holding him in her arms. She held her watch to his ear while she asked Nicholas if he had seen Mr. Thornton. The look on his face changed instantly. Aye, said he, I've seen and heard too much on him. He refused you then, said Margaret sorrowfully. To be sure, I knew he'd do it all along. It's no good expecting mercy at the hands of them masters. They're a stranger and a foreigner, and aren't likely to know their ways, but I knowed it. I'm sorry I asked you. Was he angry? He, he did not speak to you as Hamper did, did he? He weren't over-civil, said Nicholas, spinning the penny again, as much for his own amusement as for that of the children. Never you fret. I'm only where I was. I'll go on tramp tomorrow. I gave him as good as I got. I telled him I'd not that good opinion on him that I'd a come a second time on myself. But you'd advised me for to come, and I were bolden to you. You told him I sent you. I don't know if I called by your name. I do not think I did. I said a woman who knew no better. Had advised me for to come and see if there was a soft place in his art. And he? asked Margaret. Said I were to tell you to mind your own business. That's the longest spin yet, my lads. And them civil words to what he used to me. But never mind. We're but where we was, and I'll break stones on the road afore I let these little uns clem. Margaret put the struggling Johnny out of her arms, back into his former place on the dresser. I am sorry I asked you to go to Mr. Thornton's. I am disappointed in him. There was a slight noise behind her. Both she and Nicholas turned round at the same moment, and there stood Mr. Thornton, with a look of displeased surprise upon his face. Obeying her swift impulse, Margaret passed out before him, saying not a word, only bowing low to hide the sudden paleness that she felt had come over her face. He bent equally low in return, and then closed the door after her. As she hurried to Mrs. Boucher's, she heard the clang, and it seemed to fill up the measure of her mortification. He, too, was annoyed to find her there. He had tenderness in his heart, a soft place, as Nicholas Higgins called it, but he had some pride in concealing it. He kept it very sacred and safe, and was jealous of every circumstance that tried to gain admission. But if he dreaded exposure of his tenderness, he was equally desirous that all men should recognize his justice and he felt that he had been unjust in giving so scornful a hearing to anyone who had waited with humble patience for five hours to speak to him. That the man had spoken saucily to him when he had the opportunity was nothing to Mr. Thornton. He rather liked him for it, and he was conscious of his own irritability of temper at the time, which probably made them both quits. It was the five hours of waiting that struck Mr. Thornton. 
He had not five hours to spare himself, but one hour, two hours, of his hard, penetrating intellectual as well as bodily labor did he give up to going about collecting evidence as to the truth of Higgins' story, the nature of his character, the tenor of his life. He tried not to be, but was convinced that all that Higgins had said was true. And then the conviction went in as if by some spell and touched the latent tenderness of his heart. The patience of the man, the simple generosity of the motive, for he had learnt about the quarrel between Boucher and Higgins, made him forget entirely the mere reasonings of justice and overleap them by a diviner instinct. He came to tell Higgins he would give him work, and he was more annoyed to find Margaret there than by hearing her last words, for then he understood that she was the woman who had urged Higgins to come to him, and he dreaded the admission of any thought of her as a motive to what he was doing solely because it was right. So that was the lady you spoke of as a woman, said he indignantly to Higgins. You might have told me who she was. And then maybe you'd have spoken a her more civil than you did. You'd get no mother who might have kept your tongue in check while you were talking a woman being at the root of all the plagues. Of course you told that to Miss Hale. In course I did. Leastways, I reckon I did. I told her she weren't to meddle again in aught that concerned you. Whose children are those? Yours? Mr. Thornton had a pretty good notion whose they were from what he had heard, but he felt awkward in turning the conversation round from this unpromising beginning. They're not mine, and they are mine. They are the children you spoke of to me this morning. When you said, replied Higgins, turning round with ill-smothered fierceness, that my story might be true or might not, but... It were a very unlikely one. Master, I've not forgotten. Mr. Thornton was silent for a moment. Then he said, No more have I. I remember what I said. I spoke to you about those children in a way I had no business to do. I did not believe you. I could not have taken care of another man's children myself if he had acted towards me as I hear Boucher did towards you. But I knew now that you spoke truth. I beg your pardon. Higgins did not turn round or immediately respond to this. But when he did speak, it was in a softened tone, although the words were gruff enough. You've no business to go prying into what happened between Boucher and me. He's dead and I'm sorry. That's enough. So tis. Will you take work with me? That's what I came to ask. Higgins' obstinacy wavered, recovered strength, and stood firm. He would not speak. Mr. Thornton would not ask again. Higgins' eye fell on the children. You've called me impudent and a liar and a mischief-maker. And you might have said with some truth as I were now and then given to drink. And I have called you a tyrant and an old bulldog and a hard, cruel master. That's where it stands. But 
for the childer. Master, do you think we can ever get on together? Well, said Mr. Thornton, half laughing, it was not my proposal that we should go together, but there's one comfort on your own showing. We neither of us can think much worse of the other than we do now. That's true, said Higgins reflectively. I've been thinking ever since I saw you what a mercy it were you did not take me on for that I ne'er saw a man whom I could less abide. But that's maybe been a hasty judgment and work's work to such as me. So, master, I'll come, and what's more, I thank you, and that's a deal for me, said he more frankly, suddenly turning round and facing Mr. Thornton fully for the first time. And this is a deal from me, said Mr. Thornton, giving Higgins' hand a good grip. Now, mind you come sharp to your time, continued he, resuming the master. I'll have no laggards at my mill. What finds we have, we keep pretty sharply. And the first time I catch you making mischief, off you go. So, now you know where you are. You spoke of my wisdom this morning. I reckon I may bring it with me, or would you rather have me bout my brains? Without your brains, if you use them for meddling with my business, with your brains, if you can keep them to your own. I shall need a deal of brains to settle where my business ends and yours begins. Your business has not begun yet, and mine stands still for me. So, good afternoon. Just before Mr. Thornton came up to Mrs. Boucher's door, Margaret came out of it. She did not see him, and he followed her for several yards, admiring her light and easy walk and her tall and graceful figure. But suddenly, this simple emotion of pleasure was tainted, poisoned by jealousy. He wished to overtake her and speak to her to see how she would receive him. Now she must know he was aware of some other attachment. He wished, too, but of this wish he was rather ashamed, that she should know that he had justified her wisdom in sending Higgins to him to ask for work and had repented him of his morning's decision. He came up to her. She started. Allow me to say, Miss Ale, that you were rather premature in expressing your disappointment. I have taken Higgins on. I am glad of it, said she coldly. He tells me he repeated to you what I said this morning about... Mr. Thornton hesitated. Margaret took it up. About women not meddling. You had a perfect right to express your opinion, which was a very correct one, I have no doubt. But, she went on a little more eagerly, Higgins did not quite tell you the exact truth. The word truth reminded her of her own untruth, and she stopped short, feeling exceedingly uncomfortable. Mr. Thornton, at first, was puzzled to account for her silence, and then he remembered the lie she had told and all that was foregone. The exact truth, said he. Very few people do speak the exact truth. I've given up hoping for it. Miss Ale, have you no explanation to give me? You must perceive what I cannot but think. Margaret was silent. 
She was wondering whether an explanation of any kind would be consistent with her loyalty to Frederick. Nay, said he, I will ask no farther. I may be putting temptation in your way. At present, believe me, your secret is safe with me. But you run great risks, allow me to say, in being so indiscreet. I am now only speaking as a friend of your father's. If I had any other thought or hope, of course that is at an end. I am quite disinterested. I am aware of that, said Margaret, forcing herself to speak in an indifferent, careless way. I am aware of what I must appear to you, but the secret is another person's, and I cannot explain it without doing him harm. I have not the slightest wish to pry into the gentleman's secrets, he said with growing anger. My own interest in you is simply that of a friend. You may not believe me, Miss Ale, but it is, in spite of the persecution, I'm afraid I threatened you with at one time. But that is all given up, all passed away. You believe me, Miss Ale? Yes, said Margaret, quietly and sadly. Then really, I don't see any occasion for us to go on walking together. I thought perhaps you might have had something to say, but... I see we are nothing to each other. If you're quite convinced that any foolish passion on my part is entirely over, I will wish you good afternoon. He walked off very hastily. What can he mean? thought Margaret. What could he mean by speaking so, as if I were always thinking that he cared for me, when I know he does not? He cannot. His mother will have said all those cruel things about me to him. But I won't care for him. I surely am mistress enough of myself to control this wild, strange, miserable feeling which tempted me even to betray my own dear Frederick so that I might but regain his good opinion. The good opinion of a man who takes such pains to tell me that I am nothing to him? Come, poor little heart, be cheery and brave. We'll be a great deal to one another if we are thrown off and left desolate. Her father was almost startled by her merriment this afternoon. She talked incessantly and forced her natural humor to an unusual pitch, and if there was a tinge of bitterness in much of what she said, if her accounts of the old Harley Street set were a little sarcastic— her father could not bear to check her as he would have done at another time, for he was glad to see her shake off her cares. In the middle of the evening she was called down to speak to Mary Higgins, and when she came back, Mr. Hale imagined that he saw traces of tears on her cheeks. But that could not be, for she brought good news that Higgins had got work at Mr. Thornton's mill. Her spirits were damped at any rate, and she found it very difficult to go on talking at all, much more in the wild way that she had done. For some days her spirits varied strangely, and her father was beginning to be anxious about her, when news arrived from one or two quarters that promised some change and variety for her. Mr. Hale received a letter from Mr. Bell, in which that gentleman volunteered a visit to them 
and Mr. Hale imagined that the promised society of his old Oxford friend would give as agreeable a turn to Margaret's ideas as it did to his own. Margaret tried to take an interest in what pleased her father, but she was too languid to care about any Mr. Bell, even though he were twenty times her godfather. She was more roused by a letter from Edith, full of sympathy about her aunt's death, full of details about herself, her husband and child, and at the end saying that as the climate did not suit the baby, and as Mrs. Shaw was talking of returning to England, she thought it probable that Captain Lennox might sell out and that they might all go and live again in the old Harley Street house, which, however, would seem very incomplete without Margaret. Margaret yearned after that old house and the placid tranquility of that old, well-ordered, monotonous life. She had found it occasionally tiresome while it lasted, but since then she had been buffeted about and felt so exhausted by this recent struggle with herself that she thought that even stagnation would be a rest and a refreshment. So she began to look towards a long visit to the Lennoxes on the return to England as to a point, no, not of hope, but of leisure, in which she could regain her power and command over herself. At present it seemed to her as if all subjects tended towards Mr. Thornton, as if she could not forget him with all her endeavors. If she went to see the Higginses, she heard of him there. Her father had resumed their readings together and quoted his opinions perpetually. Even Mr. Bell's visit brought his tenant's name upon the tapis, for he wrote word that he believed he must be occupied some great part of his time with Mr. Thornton, as a new lease was in preparation, and the terms of it must be agreed upon. So, Thornton. But before we get to Mr. Thornton, Gaskell did something I thought was interesting at the very beginning of this chapter. Do you remember what Thornton had been doing for the last, I don't know how many chapters, every time he was upset, and at, and at home, especially at home, but, but every time he was upset? Do you remember how he paced? around the room, back and forth around the room. What was Margaret doing at the beginning of this chapter? I know. It's almost like she and Thornton were made for each other. <laughs> Yay! I thought that was a nice, a nice little touch from Gaskell. And then, of course, in our We're Annoyed by Mr. Hale fan club, when he walked in and said, oh, I'm so glad you went to Boucher's. I didn't do that yet. <sighs> But I will now. Had she been living now, I think it probably would have been passive-aggressive sounding like that. But no, no, Margaret is good. I also thought that Margaret's little conversation with herself after Mrs. Thornton was fascinating. Because she, she finally realizes that the problem that Thornton is having with her isn't so much that she lied, but that he thinks that she is in love with someone else. And that troubles her a lot. Because that's the first time we've seen her do this. That's the thing that launches her into, oh, I'm going to be the crazy cat lady and die poor and alone. Nobody's going to love me. But it was the line, the line that got me was the, I am weary. I am weary of this continued call upon me for strength. I could bear up for Papa because that is a natural pious duty. 
Really, your father is the one who's the biggest pain. I think he would even have tried the patience of Job. And then there's a double dash, an M dash, and then she switches. At any rate, I could have the energy to resent Mrs. Thornton's request. And then she goes on. But it's that, that moment of saying, well, I, could, I can handle my dad for whatever that's worth. But I can't handle, la, 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 I will not think about that right now. La, la, la. You know, it's, it's that Scarlett O'Hara, I won't think about that right now. I'll think about other things. I'll make dresses out of curtains, anything, so I don't have to think about what I'm thinking about. That, whoa, we can't get too close to that. But then she does go see Boucher, and now Boucher's wife really is ill. And movie-wasting disease is probably dying. You know, who knows what she is actually ailing from? I imagine there was no shortage of things to make you sick. But, uh, but we don't really know what it is that's killing her, just that now the assumption is that she will die, and people will have to figure out what to do with the kids. And in steps Higgins. What a mensch that guy is. I just love me some Higgins all the time. He is just fantastic. And then Thornton. Thornton and bad timing. <laughs> Margaret saying, oh, I'm so disappointed in him. And then there he is listening. And he heard you say that. And mm, I think it's time to leave. So she hoofs it out of there fast. And wasn't that scene between Thornton and Higgins marvelous? Wasn't it? I, I kept thinking, oh my gosh, this is the original bromance. If these guys just let each other know each other, you know, if they really got a chance to sit down and talk without prejudice, without any kind of cultural implications or overtones, these are two guys who would just have a ball hanging out and arguing about everything. But, you know, we can't. They can't go there. They can't go there yet. Now. They can't go there now, so... It's good enough that Thornton has given Higgins a job. And Higgins, good for him for taking the job. That man has a lot of pride, and for him to say yes to this was probably a big deal. But I think he knows, I think he knows what a big deal it was for Thornton to come to him as well. We haven't seen Thornton go to any home of any of his other workers, but he came to Higgins. So that bodes well. And then the conversation with him and Margaret, of course, is another exercise in frustration for me. I just want to smack him around. Margaret wouldn't have to say much, I don't think, to get Thornton to understand that it is not the kind of secret that he is thinking it is, but that it truly is a matter of life and death. And she could, I mean, she could even have said, look, I don't have a lover, but I can't explain to you what's going on. Not yet, not now, because someone's safety is at stake. But if she had said that, then there wouldn't have been a book, right? So much of conflict and crisis in fiction relies upon people not doing the smart thing that you know they should do. And I used to get really frustrated about that until I wrote a book <laughs> and learned the hard way how, how many times you have to take the smart words out of your character's mouth and let them screw up. It's, uh, it's unpleasant to do that, especially when you have characters who you like. And I like Margaret. I like Margaret. I like Thornton. And I like Higgins. They're kind of an awesome threesome. And on that ridiculous note, oh, wait, no, I almost forgot to tell you. Some of you have gone to South by Southwest to vote for Craftlet and Tara Swiger and Shannon Oki and me. And I know that they are asking you to sign in. So you have to create an account. They are not spammy people. 
It's a big and reputable conference. And it would mean the world to me if you went and voted for us. The two conferences that we've applied to go speak at are the education one and the interactive one. And especially for CraftLit, both of them are so important. There are so many more restrictions being put onto teachers and so many budgets being slashed. And CraftLit gives teachers an opportunity to teach the hard books because they can have the kids listen to the here's what happened part. And then the teachers can do the hard work of writing and getting the kids to analyze and synthesize and all that kind of stuff in class, which you don't get a chance to get to if you're spending your entire time just making sure the kids understand the book. But the teachers and the interactive education sources that are online can't give the teachers something like Craftlet if they don't know it exists. And I'm learning the hard way that one of the only ways to get the word out really is to go to places like this and speak and pass out cards and let people know that this is a resource and it's free. So sharing the links, very easy. If you go to the craftlit.com show notes for episode 358 at the top and at the bottom, you will find the links for the South by Southwest, uh, the two, the two different conferences that you can vote for. And we also provided a link for you that you can click on. And if you are on Twitter, it will open your Twitter page and auto-populate a tweet for you and save you a bunch of time. That is that. Thank you so much. I'm sorry the podcast was late. For those of you who listen in real time, it's been one of those weeks. I think it's just going to continue to be those weeks until the kids are in school. So thank you. And I'll talk to you soon. Oh, and don't forget, 1-206-350-1642 or at the craftlit.com show notes page, you will see a little tab in the upper right-hand side that says leave feedback. And if you have a microphone on your computer, you can get your voicemail to me that way. All right, that's it. Take care. Have a great week. I'll talk to you soon. Like Craftlet? Leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. Like us on Facebook. Or leave a link to us when you comment on literary blogs. You can listen via iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Craftlet.com, or our dedicated Android, iOS, and Windows 8 smartphone and tablet apps. You can use the same free Craftlet app to access premium streaming content on the go. Craftlit is and has been made possible by the support of its listeners. And for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.